Ciao amici. Welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today, we'll be talking about Roberto Rossellini's 1950 film Stromboli, or Stromboli Terra di Dio. First, as a few news items, the Premi David Di Donatello Awards, recognizing Italian film, like the Oscars of Italy, took place on May 3, 2022. The big winner of the night was The Hand of God, which won Best Film, Best Director for Paolo Sorrentino, and Best Supporting Actress for Teresa Saponangelo. This film was definitely a favorite of mine, I even did an episode on it a few months back, so I was happy to see The Hand of God recognized at the awards. Another big winner was Freaks Out by Gabriele Mainetti, which won many of the Crafts Awards, including Best Production. The Cannes Film Festival also just wrapped up. A few call-outs regarding Italian film include the debut of a new restoration of Vittorio De Sica's Shusha, or Shushine, his 1946 breakout feature before Bicycle Thieves in 1948. Also, an up-and-coming filmmaker, Valerio Ferrara, won the Cine Foundation Award for Il Barbiere Complotista, or A Conspiracy Man. The Cine Foundation selection is a special category for student filmmakers, so excited to see what comes next for Ferrara. New to North American screens is the film Mondo Cane, which literally means Dog World, directed by Alessandro Celli. Mondo Cane is a sort of science fiction film set in a dystopian, not-too-distant future following two young teenage boys in a world void of opportunity that join into an underground gang syndicate. Their descent into crime is paralleled by a girl in town who's around their age, who's a ward of the state embedded in institutions, though neither path for these young people, that of anarchy and that of stability, seems to offer any real happiness or meaning. I didn't love this movie, and it felt a little goofy watching an Oliver Twist-style gang rung by adults and carried out by children. A particular image that comes to mind is that of Alessandro Borghi, a grown-up actor, towering over a bunch of kids in a gang lair called The Ant Hill. I'm not sure who this movie is meant for, whether it's for children to be warned about the perils of absolute freedom and chaos, or if it's for adults given some pretty adult themes and violence. Mondo Cane is available through Kino Lorber and is now playing in theaters and will be coming soon to video on demand this month in June 2022. Another more personal update is that I recently returned from my first ever trip to Sicily. I got to spend two weeks on the island with a guided tour for the first half and then stayed in the village my family is from for the second half. On top of everything else, a special element of the vacation was getting to see settings of so many Italian films. The beaches of Cefalu, as seen in Cinema Paradiso. The volcano of Mount Etna, as seen in Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew in Porcile. The memorial mural in Palermo, the capital of Sicily, honoring figures featured in Marco Bellocchio's The Traitor. The judges Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino, whose story and tragic assassinations are represented in the film. And one of the best experiences I had was getting to visit, several times, the town and dramatic coastline of Acitrezza, a village and way of life immortalized by Lucchino Visconti's La Terra Trema, a film I discussed in the previous episode. A chance encounter I'll never forget is stumbling into the Casa dei Pescatori, a sort of social club for fishermen, who told me about local traditions for their Saint Day celebration 
and pointed out vintage photographs on the wall of their ancestors and of themselves as they carry on the way of life that's been passed along for generations. I've mentioned before on the show that my Sicilian ancestors were fishermen, so getting to speak with the Sicilian fishermen of today was an incredible connection with my family history. And then close to Acitrezza is the big city of Catania with a historic fish market. As told in La Terra Trema, the fish caught in Acitrezza, Acicastello, in the nearby towns is then brought to the big city Catania to be sold at the fish market there. I don't think the fish merchants I saw in Catania were, quote, villainous as they're portrayed in La Terra Trema, but it was neat to be able to connect the dots geographically between the world experienced by the fishermen in the smaller villages and where their work is distributed by the merchants in the city. Now, arriving on our main subject for today, Roberto Rossellini's film Stromboli. I first watched this movie as a blind buy purchase when the Criterion Collection released it in 2013, and I was struck by a few qualities. That star Ingrid Bergman's character is a bit unlikable, and my early read was that she was flighty and unpredictable. Looking back at my first watch review, and I'll include a link in the show notes, today I disagree with some of those earlier takes, but it's been a film that has stayed with me and continues to linger and fascinate me nearly 10 years after my first viewing. Stromboli is the story of Karen, a Lithuanian refugee who we meet in a camp in Farfa in central Italy, who falls in love with an Italian soldier named Antonio. Having lost everything in World War II, she weighs between a future in Argentina or a future with Antonio. Her visa to Argentina is denied, so off she goes for a life ahead with Antonio. He takes her to his home on the volcanic island of Stromboli off the coast of Italy, just northwest of the toe of the boot of the main peninsula and north of Sicily. What she finds is a small village with practically deserted streets and a barren home with a rotting ceiling. She often says that she wants to get out. This is no land for civilized people. At times, she and Antonio seem to have a tender romance, and she even becomes pregnant, but he also has moments of fierce jealousy, and she often reminds him that he can't provide for her the way that she deserves. She does find connection with the local priest and a man who works at the lighthouse, but otherwise, she finds herself pretty isolated from the community. She barely speaks the language, and often breaks social norms even without realizing it. In one particularly striking scene, she watches the local fishermen at work catching tuna fish. It's an exciting, visceral sequence to witness, but she's worn out by the end, unable to find meaning or even interest in her husband's work in this cornerstone of the community. One day, the volcano begins to erupt, and the ceiling of their home begins to crumble in. She flees, and while the other townspeople board boats for safety, Karen seizes her opportunity to escape. She ventures up the mountain, coughing and struggling as she's engulfed in smoke. As she nears the volcano's summit, she has a breakdown, sobbing and eventually passing out. When she comes to, the eruption has stopped, and it's a moment of peace, a stark contrast from the clamor and rumbling we heard just moments before. She seems like a new person, now reconsidering the volcano and saying to herself, what mystery, what beauty. She turns around but doesn't want to go back to the village. Instead, she asks God for the strength, the understanding, and the courage to save her child. 
The final moments are an image of birds flying over the shadow of the volcano as we hear Karen calling out for God. Stromboli is a film that doesn't have a lot of plot mechanics, but it establishes a layered world, complex themes, and an overall mood that is undeniably striking. It explores human social experiences of being an outsider, a refugee, as well as mankind's relationship with nature as an observer, as participant, and even as victim. Later, I'll dive more into the movie's locale and title character, the volcano Stromboli, as both mother figure and metaphor for hell and possibly redemption. The most narrative-based theme is that of being an outsider or other and the toll that that takes on the human spirit. The life awaiting Karen in Stromboli is anything like a home to her. Her first impression of her house with Antonio is one of disgust, as she is from a higher class than her husband. Even the town itself is like a labyrinth. In one memorable shot, looking down on her from overhead, we see her wandering the streets, ducking alleyways and stuck in dead ends. As time goes on, she tries to make her house a home, freshening up furniture and decor. Local men help carry in and build furniture pieces, while the women of town start to shun her. With all the changes she's made to her home, they find Karen to be immodest. After Antonio learns Karen has gone to the house of a disreputable woman, he breaks their new vase, rejecting the changes she brought to the home, and instead puts up the pictures of his family and religious statues that she had taken down in the first place. This innocent visit to the woman's house, Karen just needed her help to sew a dress, has ramifications throughout the community's perception of her. Men start to serenade her, believing her to be a flirt, and the women continue to watch her wordlessly. From across the chapel and church, to the coastline peering at her along the beaches, even with the passing of time and familiarity, Karen's actions do nothing to help her find community in her new town. And perhaps this is inescapable, given Karen's background and how she got there. She is originally a Lithuanian. In the displaced persons camp, she tells officers she had moved to Czechoslovakia, then emigrated to Yugoslavia, before ultimately ending up in Italy with false identification papers. And then, moving to Stromboli with her husband, she's someone whose life has been on the move, forced out of her home by war. The film begins and ends with her in a momentary, temporary state, on the brink of a new chapter in her life. We meet Karen first in this refugee camp in Farfa, where she is keen primarily on going to Argentina if she gets a visa, in a stage where marrying Antonio and staying in Italy is her plan B. Her life is in transit, and her hardened attitude can be a result of being on the move, having to stay strong and get herself through as a means of survival. Even once she's married, and in what some may consider to be a forever home, in a new house with her new husband, she constantly says she wants to leave and strives for something better. There seems to be no obligation to her husband or the life she committed to with wedding vows. The story of her life has been one with another chapter just around the corner. Everything so far has been temporary, so why should her married life be any different? Though it's not just her life in transit that makes Stromboli a place she wants to escape from. Here is a locale and a community where Karen is confronted with the harsh, though inevitable, power of the natural world. A disturbing moment, both to Karen and possibly to us as the viewers, comes when Antonio brings home a ferret with the intent to catch rabbits. 
He lets the ferret loose, and it chomps onto a baby rabbit, squealing in pain as it's helpless to escape. Antonio laughs and watches the scene play out, while Karen is deeply upset, calling him savage and begging him to intervene and stop this act of nature. Another, perhaps subliminal, aggressive image of nature lies in plain sight in Karen and Antonio's home, the large prickly pear cactus plant added to their house when Karen begins redecorating. It's positively massive, nearly as big as a human. The prickly pear is an iconic, ubiquitous plant throughout Sicily in the sandy Mediterranean climate. And, of course, as a cactus, it's spiky and hurts to touch. But here it is as a visual centerpiece of their home. It could be an acceptance of nature. It's invited into their home. But it's one that's contained within a large pot and not overgrown and unrestrained. A similar, slightly distanced encounter with nature occurs when Karen is at the beach with the lighthouse worker. He has a fisherman's tool, a bucket with a clear bottom, to look into the sea to find whether there's fish in there or not. He uses it first to show her an octopus, which at first interests her, but then he pulls the octopus out of the water with his hands to show her more closely, and she's startled and slips down onto the rocks. The natural world can be viewed from a safe distance, but actually being confronted with it is another story. The ultimate confrontation with nature comes with the film's finale, as Karen trudges up the volcano mid-eruption. Here is a woman not ducking away from the violence of the animal kingdom or from the unknown creatures of the deep, but now going up against the literal foundation of her new community, the only one from town who stays while everyone else runs for the boats. Even as the smoke surrounds her and the shape of the mountain and all its vistas are blocked by the fumes, she doesn't back down. When she passes out and eventually comes to, it's as though she's a different person, not seeing the volcano as the terror that it was before, but now as an object of mystery and of beauty. She's no longer rejecting the world around her, but now admiring and finding the wonder in it. There's quite a bit to unpack from these final moments looking into the eye of Stromboli. The sudden change of heart from fear and rejection of the volcano to one of understanding and awe rings true with how the volcano Mount Etna is perceived in Sicily. Mount Etna, like Stromboli, is the dominant force on the island. The entire eastern half is volcano, steadily rising uphill, and its influence is felt in everything from architecture, with buildings made of black lava stone, to the richness of the soil, bringing agriculture and wine to flavorful life through the mineral-rich earth the volcano produces. Among Sicilians, Mount Etna is spoken of lovingly, like a mother figure, as a great provider to the people. The more time I spent in Sicily, the more I understood and felt the beauty and gifts that the volcano provides. For an outsider or first-time viewer, the townspeople of Stromboli might be hard to understand. They're living happily on the slopes of a volcano, even when it breaks out in eruptions and when they have to flee for safety. For all its dangers, the volcano brings many blessings and gifts. It's a danger that people have learned to live with and have accepted for all the good that it brings. Stromboli as mother and provider could be symbolic for Karen as a new mother-to-be when she finally looks into the eye of the volcano. Karen is pushed to the emotional brink in a near hysterical state just as the Stromboli reaches its geological climax. 
Karen herself is with child, is about to become a provider, and is more equipped and more equal than ever to the mountain. The two also temper and cool down in synchronicity as Karen comes to in a calm state as the volcanic eruption has come to its end. Subliminally, maybe it took Karen to become a mother like the island itself in order for her to find meaning in it and to accept it. An alternate reading could be to compare this final confrontation, one that erupts in smoke and fire, as Karen's descent into and escape from hell, like a modern-day divine comedy, specifically looking at the Inferno and Purgatorio sections. The Divine Comedy is an epic poem by Dante Alighieri from the Middle Ages. The first section, Inferno, is a journey through to the bottom of hell, but coming out the other side, recognizing and rejecting sin along the way. The narrator, Dante himself, becomes lost and trapped in a forest, where he is escorted through hell by the Roman poet Virgil. The description of hell is one in which punishments become increasingly cruel and torturous according to the severity of the sin that the mortal committed during their lifetime. In Karen's life, both before and during her time in Stromboli, she commits seduction, albeit as a survival mechanism, to get her through the war and to secure her safety. Her neighbors likely would accuse her of greed, as they remark on her new furniture and wardrobe as failing to show modesty. It's also implied that she commits adultery with the lighthouse worker, as well as for making advances on the town priest while she's married to Antonio. Whether deserved or not, her actions and sins culminate in her being punished and trapped in her home by her husband Antonio, who nails boards to the front door to keep her inside. The lighthouse worker comes to set her free, and Karen, believing that she's trapped and that she has nowhere else to turn, sees her only escape route as up to the volcano, to the fire and smoke erupting around her, a climactic landscape like hell on earth. Everything she's done, everything she's experienced that's been building up inside her is seismically manifested as the volcanic eruption. And then when she passes out and comes to, it's a moment of relief, peace, and tranquility, of acceptance that's not exactly happiness or a clear direction, the ending of Dante's Inferno brings the narrator out of hell into Purgatory, the next epic poem titled Purgatorio. The overall thesis of Purgatorio is that in Purgatory, sins are the result of love, distinct from the Inferno, where sins are a product of self-interest and ego. The transition from one mindset to another could mirror that of Karen, initially looking out, albeit understandably, for herself during the wartime, and now, as a mother, her actions, as well as her potential future sins and mistakes, are committed with love at their core. It's also interesting that her change of heart, presumably to an attitude closer to that of the communities and to finding beauty in Stromboli, is a transformation that she undergoes by herself. No one changed her mind or influenced this new outlook. Karen, as an individual, almost in opposition to the townspeople, is a theme amplified both through sound and through editing. In his book, A Cinema of Poetry, author Joseph Luzzi describes a chorality of the community in Stromboli. The townspeople are like an ensemble who we hear singing in the streets, praying during the Matanza fishing scene, chanting the rosary as the volcano erupts, 
Through their voices, united, they make a whole as a singular force at odds with Karen. I would add that their role is also like a Greek chorus, albeit an unknowable one. In classic theatrical tradition, the role of the chorus is as a homogeneous, unified presence, commenting on the action or providing insight as a connection between the audience and the main players. Here, the chorus is practically mute to an English-speaking audience. With limited subtitles and often portrayed as an other, we can hardly connect with this community any more than Karen can. This disconnect is also heightened through the film's editing. In the memorable tuna fishing sequence, Rossellini's neorealist filmmaking really comes out, with documentary-style footage showing the fishermen casting out their nets and the gradual bubbling up as tuna come closer to the surface, then a mad rush of activity as the fish desperately splash around and are hauled up aboard the boats. The shine of the sun softening the outlines of the men and the reflection of the wet scales on the tuna fish. All the footage is rough and unpolished, but it's a captivating glimpse into this way of life. In contrast, Karen, who's watching all this from the sidelines in a rowboat of her own, is shot in a much more traditional way, with formal composition, balanced lighting, and a more polished image than the manic action taking place all around her. This disparity is further emphasized as the shot cuts between these two vantage points, the action of fishing versus Karen watching, and the absolute contrast in feeling and tone further support her as being disconnected and not fitting in with the community around her. The film's title in Italian is Stromboli Terra di Dio, or Land of God, an appropriate name for a rough, untamed landscape. The island itself is all volcano, all uphill, so the sheer act of living and surviving on it is not easy. This harkens back to a conversation Karen has with the priest. He assures her that everything will be alright, to which she stubbornly replies, you mean the island and the volcano too? As though the earth is something that can change, rather than a force to adapt to and learn to live with. Stromboli can also be the land of God, as reflected in that final scene. Karen is desperate, nearing the summit of the volcano, calling out for God as she's months into a pregnancy, looking to leave her husband, and has nowhere else to turn. The presence of the volcano runs throughout the entire film, and now in its eruptive state, it's the ultimate apex and forced confrontation between woman and nature to face God head on. To add a little color to the geographic locations of the film, the main one, of course, is Stromboli itself, one of the Aeolian or Lipari islands of Sicily. The island is a volcano and has been erupting pretty much continuously the past few thousand years. From the handful of villages on the island, it's suggested that we're in San Bartolo, on the northeast side across from the Italian peninsula. Another village mentioned is Ginostra, on the opposite southeast side of the island. It comes into the story as a motorboat cruises by, catching Karen's attention. The lighthouse worker tells her that the boat is from Ginostra, so reaching the town, as a potential escape from her new home, becomes like a new goalpost for her. Ginostra is a town that, even today, cannot be reached by roads or trails. Karen crossing over the volcano in the film's climactic moments or out of necessity, as she would have been unable to get to Ginostra by boat by herself. Another location we briefly see is Messina. That's the city in Sicily, on the very northeast of the island, 
just opposite the toe of mainland Italy. I did get to visit Messina during my trip to Sicily, and I got to see the Golden Maronina, a tall statue of the Virgin Mary guarding the port, which we see for a moment in the film as Karen and Antonio journey from Farfa to their new home in Stromboli. Stromboli is director Roberto Rossellini's first film of the 1950s and followed his triumphant neorealist war trilogy of Rome Open City, Paisa, and Germany Year Zero, and was released right before The Flowers of St. Francis, which I've also done an episode on. This film was highly anticipated, following three tremendous neorealist works, as well as being his first of several collaborations with the actress Ingrid Bergman. At this point, she was a huge Hollywood star, and she was so moved by Rossellini's films of the 1940s that she wrote a letter to him offering herself to work with him and make a movie together. Their collaboration led to a real-life, scandalous affair, and together they made some of the great works of Italian cinema, including Stromboli, Europe 51, and Journey to Italy. Like other neorealist films of the era, such as La Terra Trema and Bicycle Thieves, Stromboli is an amazing snapshot into a way of life in a particular place. Even with Karen's story at the forefront, the community and the striking tuna fish sequence are perfectly captured and immortalized on film. What also lingers with Stromboli is its mystical qualities, both in how the community is not totally knowable, given limited subtitles and being portrayed as an other, but even the psychology of our lead, Karen, is hard to decipher. Not all of her actions make rational sense, and even with a massive change of heart and moment of transformation from the film's climax, we don't know with certainty what she's going to do. It's not a film noir by any stretch, but the mystery and the unknowability of Stromboli make it a fascinating piece to revisit and continue to ponder over the years. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your choice of podcast platform. You can also follow the show on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time, ciao amici.